Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. We're back in 2 Samuel 23 today. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 39. I believe there will be uh, extra jewels in my crown for having to read this list uh, and to attempt to pronounce these. Is Dr. Fuller here? Perhaps we should... Have him come and read this to us in the proper Hebrew pronunciations. Let's read this text. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruah, was chief of the thirty. And he swung his spear against three hundred and killed them and had a name as well as the three. He was most honored of the thirty, therefore he became their commander. However, he did not attain to the three. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kebzeel, who had done mighty deeds, killed the two sons of Ariel of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, an impressive man. Now, the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down and to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did, and had a name as well as the three mighty men. He was honored among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David appointed him over his guard. Asahel the brother of Joab was among the thirty, Elhanan the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah the Herodite, Elika the Herodite, Heliz the Paltite, Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekoite, Abiezer, the Anathothite, Mebaniah, the uh, Hushite, Zalman, the Ahohite, Mariah, the Nephthite, that's a tough one, Helib, the son of Banah, the Nephthite, Ittai, the son of Ribia, of Gibeah, uh, of the sons of Benjamin, Beniah, the Parathonite, Hidai, the uh, of the brooks of Gash, Abalabon, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, uh, the Barhumite, Elihaba, the Shalabanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shammah, the Herite, Ahim, the son of Sharar, the Arite, Eliphalet, the son of Ahasabai, the son of Machathite, Elam, the son of Ahithophel, the uh, Gileanite, Hezro, the Carmelite, Pariah, the Arbite, Ilgal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the uh, Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Neriah, the Barathite, armor bearers of Joab, the son of Zeruah, Ira, the uh, Ithrite, and Gareb, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Praise God. (laughs) Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that these names have been recorded for us to remember. Father, we thank you that our names are recorded. Lord, that you look upon us with favor and love and prepared for us deeds of service. Lord, that we might be counted among the mighty, among your elect. Help us this day as we study this text, Lord, that we would be good and faithful Slaves, those that do what they ought, 
do what you have prepared for us. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this chapter is an invitation to remember the heroes of Israel, and specifically David's armies. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the first three in verses uh, 8 through 13. And uh, then last week, Brother Tanner, he took us through uh, a little inset story of uh, the courage of three unnamed, potentially the the first three or others that are from here, uh, unnamed mighty men to secure their king a drink of water. And that was in verses 14 and 17. And today uh, is our final look at this chapter. This is part three, if you will, of the remaining list. These are men who would not receive much recognition uh, in our modern context. They are strong men, unintimidated by their enemies. They don't fit the modern ideal man who is compliant and agreeable and accepting and compromising. These are men who are ready for conflict. They rise up. They act like men, and they stand against the enemies of their king. And the question that we're asking, I'm asking, uh, as we look at this, is is we're doing what this text expects us to do, and that's to remember them. We're asking a question, uh, for what will we be known? How will I be remembered? That's what I'm asking. Will our names be on an honor roll of might? Is our king pleased with us as we serve him? Will we hear from King Jesus upon his return, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put, in, I put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And let's do what the text requires under the following headings and, and let them help us to discern our answers to those questions. We want to remember Abishai and Benaiah, that's first. Secondly, we want to remember the honor roll, that grouping that was so difficult to read. And then we want to look at the last verse separately and remember Uriah. Let's look at and remember Abishai and Benaiah. Now, this list of mighty men beginning from verse 8 is weighted up, up front with specific men who had notable deeds that set them apart. Uh, we're looking at the final two with resumes worthy of remembrance. And this is Abishai and Benai. The overarching quality of all the men listed here is their loyalty to the king. They are called David's mighty Men, they had a notable quality of pure devotion to the king. In addition to that, as we noted with uh, uh, Yashobiam and uh, Eleazar and Shema, these are men of uh, wise in the word. Uh, they are skilled in their craft, and they are uncompromised in principle. And they will not back down because they cannot back down. In our text, we are introduced to two more, Abishai and Benai. Let's look at Abishai. Abishai is the, the nephew of King David, and he is well known to us in prior chapters. I think the recorder of First and Second Samuel, he expected us readers to know him too. And so he doesn't list everything that he has done. Because what is known about Abishai in other places, is it's not repeated here in our text, only 
uh, some new exploits that we hadn't heard before are, are, are written down for us. So, but let's re- quickly recall the exploits that are not mentioned here in our final list of the mighty men. There are eight noteworthy references to Abishai that we should remember. And we won't go to these passages. I just want to kind of blitz through this list so we get a picture because he's, he's very familiar to us. Uh, in 1 Samuel 26, Abishai, he went with David into Saul's camp. And he stood by the sleeping king's head, offering to kill him with a single blow. He was eager to deliver the kingdom of David by killing David's first rival. David, of course, stopped him and he encouraged him to wait for the Lord to remove Saul. You recall that. Secondly, in 2 Samuel 2, Abner, he kills Joab and Abishai's brother, Asahel, uh, in Gibeah. You remember that. The two brothers then took uh, revenge on Abner at the end of chapter 3. In 2 Samuel 10, Abishai, he defeated the Arameans while Joab was defeating the Ammonites. He he's, has a military prowess of his own. Uh, in 2 Samuel 16, 16, Abishai, he wants to kill Shimei for cursing his exalted king, but David stops him and, and lets him continue to mock him as he walks by. In 2 Samuel 18, Abishai was assigned one-third of David's army to put down Absalom's rebellion. Number six, in 2 Samuel 20, Abishai and Joab, they defeat the rebel Sheba. You remember that? As he goes and they encircle the city and they throw out Sheba's head to them. In 2 Samuel 21, number seven, Abishai, he killed the giant Ishbi Banab so that David, the lamp of Israel, would not be extinguished. He's a giant slayer. And then finally, uh, not yet known to us because we have been sticking to the text in, in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, um, in 1 Chronicles 18, Abishai, he defeats 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, and then the rest of the Edomites, they become servants of David, something we hadn't looked at. So, Abishai has quite the pedigree. The bold companion to the king, the avenger of blood, the defender of the king's honor, the pursuer of rebels, the slayer of giants, and the conqueror of nations. That's Abishai. That's what we are expected to already know about this man. There's a consistency about him. But the writer wants you to know three additional things about him. The writer wants you to know his military rank, his military prowess, and his military honor. Let's just reread this text again. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 18, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruah, was chief of the 30, and he swung his spear against 300 and killed them and had a name as well as the three. He was most honored of the 30. Therefore, he became their commander. However, he did not attain to the three. Think about his rank, his military rank. The text says that he was the chief of the 30. And that phrase, the the 30, it refers to David's elite men. This is a special military unit personally selected by the king. And our passage says, if you skip down to verse 39, it says that there were 37 in all. And that's because at the time of this writing, seven have died and then replaced to to retain the number 30. And so 30 is, is this military, uh, it's the scorpion unit, as it were, uh, of, of them. So to be counted among the 30 meant that you were actually a chief. 
So if you go back to verse 13, they're all called chiefs. That's, their, that's their, their, how they're thought of. As a chief, uh, a chief is a leader. Is among the, the armies of David, these men are all leading. They were looked upon as examples and inspiration for all of the army. So with that in mind, we understand that Abishai's military rank is chief of the chiefs. He is the leader of leaders. That's not to discount the the greater deeds of the first three. It's just to recognize his leadership. A sign of a good leader is not to be intimidated by the success of the men under your charge. A bad leader tries to always have prominence and, and is uncomfortable when other men get more accolades than he does. Now let's look at Abishai's military prowess. Abishai is also good with a spear. Notably, he is remembered for going against 300 and killing them. And I want you to note the division there that is presented in that text. First, he swung against them. Like Yashobiam and Eleazar and Shema from the beginning of the list, Abishai, he doesn't run. He stands. He is not intimidated by opposition. And so he's, he's against them. Secondly, he killed them. Not only did he stand firm, he won. And like Yashobiam with his spinning blades, he was a, a killing machine, as it were. He's a man of skill with the blade. And because of this resolve in his skill with the spear, his fame is right up there with the first three, Yashobiam, Eleazar, and Shammah. Let's look at his military honor. The individual deeds of the, the first three are definitely more renowned. They're more shocking, if it's possible. Yashabiam, he killed 800. Abishai, he only killed 300. <laughs> and so, should men be called forward to receive the accolades of fellow soldiers because of a single battle, the three would win the day. But Abishai is the most honored, it says. Meaning, battle after battle, he is consistently called forward. His single deeds never reached the height of the others, but his consistency was a source of regular honor. Understandably, the guy who is most honored moves up the ranks over the man with a single honor, even though his deed was greater. And therefore, Abishai is made the commander of these men. Let's now remember Beniah. Read with me from verse 20. Then Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kebzeel, who had done mighty deeds, killed the two sons of Ariel of Moab. He also went down and he killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, an impressive man. Now, the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with a club and he snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoda, uh, did and had a name as well as the three mighty men. He was honored among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David appointed him over his guard. The writer wants us to remember a few things about Benaiah. Wants us to see his impressive lineage 
in his mighty deeds. Look at his, let's think about his deeds here. When we think about his, his impressive lineage, he is uh, the son of Kabzeel, uh, who is a valiant man. He's a man that other people knew about, a father that, uh, that was honorable, a father that people uh, knew, and he comes from that impressive lineage. And then from that, we have these mighty deeds. First is the killing of the sons of Ariel. Now, if you're reading in the NASB as I am, you'll notice the, that sons of is italicized. Um, and that's done to demonstrate that that's actually not from the text, but that's an interpretive uh, thing that they're putting there. Uh, the Hebrew phrase, uh, to, it, it literally, it, it translates this, to Ariel of Moab. Uh, that's not clear as to, to what it's talking about. So the translators of the NASB, they take the, the position that Ariel is a proper name and that these are two sons of Ariel. And so that, that's why they say that. But others translate this differently. And they see Ariel as meaning warrior. And so he killed two of Moab's mightiest warriors is how they would understand it. But either way, the intent is the same. Benaiah is one bad dude, worthy of remembrance because he went up against some really impressive warriors. Either they're noteworthy warriors from their father, Ariel, or they're noteworthy warriors of Moab. That's the point of this text. The original reader would hear this and think, wow, he is a mighty man to go up against these two individuals. But that's not all he did. It's also known for, for killing a lion. For killing a lion. This is truly impressive. Consider the location, the conditions, and the enemy that he is facing. This fight, it takes place in a pit. It's not a location either Benaiah nor the lion can easily escape from. We're told it's snowing. That's significant because it's in the winter and it's cold. And the snow would make uh, getting in and out of the pit extra difficult. His foe is a lion. Some stats to help you understand why killing a lion is a mighty deed. A lion is between uh, five and a half to eight and a half feet long and weighs between 330 and 570 pounds typically. The lion he's fighting is in a pit. He's a trapped animal. Either something has fallen into a pit or he's been placed in there for some reason. And being that it's winter and snowing, uh, and that lion is trapped, we can correctly assume that this lion is starving as well. This is truly a deed worthy of remembrance to go down into the pit and kill this starving, uh, trapped animal. And the final thing in his resume is this, this killing of the Egyptian. The Egyptian was an impressive man. Literally, it says he was a man of appearance. That's not uh, talking about his looks. He's not impressed by how handsome he is. He was a man that everyone noticed. You ever seen a large man enter a room and everybody sees him? I was once at the Mall of America and I saw Evander Holyfield. He was sitting there eating a, a little cup of, of ice cream. 
And uh, my, if I take my, my fist and I put it here and it's at the base of my chin, you'll notice that my knuckle comes underneath my nose, right? Evander Holyfield's fist would have been to the top of my head. That's how big his hand was. He was an impressive man. This Egyptian should be considered a giant. He is a man of impressive size and girth. This is hardly a fair fight either. Not only is the Egyptian bigger than Beniah, he's also better armed, according to the text. The text says that Beniah only had a short, dull club, while the Egyptian has a long, sharp spear. That's of no consequence for one of the king's mighty men. He runs up on the bigger man. He rips the spear from his hand, kills him with his own weapon. That's impressive. That's Benaiah's resume. Now let's look up, uh, think about some, uh, something both these me- mighty men and the prior mighty men all have in common. Of course, uh, the three marks I pointed out when we, we looked at verses 8 through 12 are true of all of them. Namely, these are all men who are, are wise. These are all men who are skilled. They are all men who are principled. And we can add to that Tanner's emphasis last week that they are all devoted to the king. But I think there is something else worth highlighting in this text. These are men who refuse to be intimidated by the enemy. They refuse to be intimidated by the enemy. I mean, when, when 300 warriors advance, it takes a special kind of resolve to not turn and run. Or when the champions of Moab rise up, or a giant Egyptian comes at you, or a starving and trapped lion is in the pit, it takes a resolve to enter into the battle. Oh, that the church would not be intimidated by the enemies of Christ. Even when they're the fiercest, would that gospel men and gospel women would scoff and enter into the battle. Why are they not intimidated? Because they are convinced of their, their confident king, their confident God. They have a confidence in him. They know what he wants. They know who their king is. In First Chronicles chapter 11, it said this. It says, Now these are the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who gave him strong support in his kingdom together with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. God has spoken and given his word. Unintimidated men and women stand upon the word of God. Rusty Thomas, he pointed this out at our rally uh, that we had last Friday about HB 300. Man must live by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says this, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Of course, this is a verse we all know. Jesus, he quoted this during his temptation. I want you to note what it doesn't say. This is what Rusty's message to us was. It doesn't say Christians must live by. It does not say that that those who believe in God must live by. It says man must live by. 
the unintimidated call all men to submit to the authority of God's word. All of you. All of Shelbyville. All of Kentucky. All of us must live by God's word. These are men convinced that the word of God announces the identity of their king. Here, David is king and his mighty men exist to bring him glory wherever his enemies stand. Last night in front of the barrel room, as we proclaimed that Christ must be honored, the number one objection was lack of belief in God. I don't have to obey your God because I don't believe in your God. I don't have to obey God's word because I don't believe in the author of that book. I don't believe your your God even exists. Such excuses do not matter to the unintimidated. Mankind must live by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. At one point last night, a woman asked uh, asked Tanner if uh, he believed in Noah's Ark. Remember that? Her intent was to mock him for believing something that was so absurd in her fallen mind. And unintimidated and unashamed, he announced yes, and then he explained that Noah was a preacher of righteousness before the pending wrath of God fell on others and used that as a springboard to call her to repentance. Church, are you intimidated by the enemies of Christ? Does seeing abortion outlawed seem too big for you? Does seeing evil restrained in Shelby County seem too big? When an atheist tells you that they don't believe in God, uh, do you have no answer to them? Confidence in his word and faith in Christ, they dispel intimidation. Grow in your confidence in his word. Grow in your faith in Christ. Don't be intimidated by the enemies of Christ. I love how Benaiah is an illustration of presuppositional apologetics. What's he do? He takes the weapons of his enemy and he slays him with it. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. The fool makes truth claims about acknowledging where, uh, without acknowledging where truth comes from. And the unintimidated, they snatch truth back and they expose the fool's hypocrisy. The fool makes claims of morality. This is right and this is wrong. And the unintimidated, they snatch morality back and they expose the fool's hypocrisy. Is this book God's word? Grow in your understanding of it. Stand upon it. Declare it. Does God's word announce Christ as king over this world? Let's just start in your life. Let's just start in your home. Submit to him there. As you read the word, submit to him on what he expects of you. Obey him. Follow him. You claim to love Christ. Obey Christ. Submit your home to his authority. Call others to submit to him. Rally to the banner of Christ Jesus and proclaim his authority over all. 
And Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's your marching orders. Christ lays claim over everything. And all should submit to him. Let's, Abishai and Benai, let's remember now the honor roll. We turn our attention to this daunting list of names from verse 24 through 38. And for the sake of time, and because I'll likely uh, pronounce them different than the first time that I read them, um, let's just note a few things uh, from this list without rereading it. The first is that these men are mostly from Judah. These are men predominantly from David's tribe, Judah. They are all men known to the king. Likely, uh, David grew up with some of them. And, and some of them are younger and, or older than the king. And that doesn't seem to, to matter to them. What's important is that each one was chosen by King David to occupy this list. Some of them we know details and can recall some stories For example, Asahel in verse 24 was the brother of Joab and Abishai. And he was a swift runner whom Abner murdered with the blunt end of his spear. You remember he stopped short and puts the spear through him. Joab and Abishai would later take vengeance upon Abner and then kill him. Shema in verse 25, he was the commander of the 5th division of David's army. Helez in 26 was the commander of the 7th division of David's army. Uh, Mebunai in verse 27 was the commander of the 8th division in David's army. And he also defeated, you'll recall, uh, the giant Saf in, in prior chapters. And this one is really interesting to me. Verse 34, Eliam may have been the father of Bathsheba. Imagine giving your loyalty to the son who has committed adultery with your daughter. Now, Uriah, in verse 37, he served as one of Joab's armor bearers, as the text says. Note also that these are men of lineage. There's quite a few of these men are known for their connection to their father, their lineage. Dads like Dodo and Ikesh and Rabbi and Jashan and Jonathan and Sharar and Ahashabai and Ahithophel and Nathan. This is a reminder of the significant role fathers have in raising their sons to fear God and serve the king. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When your sons receive public honors, when they, when they are remembered, will they be associated with you or will they need to distance themselves from you as some seem to do in this list? There are some fathers in here are worth noting and, and many also don't mention their fathers. And what side will you fall on? Number three, these are men with roots. And by that I mean their geographical location and their family area. They're unashamed of their beginnings. 
Last night, that, that same woman who, who mocked Tanner, she called us all stupid. Just drunk because she calls us stupid. Yes, ma'am, we are just a bunch of backwards Kentucky rednecks saved by God's grace. You're absolutely right. We are the dumbest among us. But here we stand, unintimidated. I won't read them, but these men come from every hole and holler across Israel and some beyond to stand with their king. And now most notably about them is this final thing. These are men without deeds. Of course, they have them. But in this list, nothing is recorded. Remembering them for their deeds was less important than remembering them because the king wanted them remembered. They are the king's chosen men. And that's enough. Deeds worthy of remembrance, they come about when mighty men are put to the test. And by that I mean these are mighty men before battle. Before they ever pick up the spear, these are mighty men. They grow in wisdom and skill, principle and loyalty, and are mighty men selected by the king before deeds worthy of remembrance happen. Meaning Abishai, he was a mighty man. And when 300 men came at him, his might was proven and recorded. And Benaiah was a mighty man. And when the day to fight the Egyptian came, he ran toward the enemy and not away. His might was proven and recorded. Now I want to combine a couple spiritual truths in your mind today. There is a book where your name is recorded. Paul speaks about it in Philippians 4.3 says, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It's our first mention of it. There's a book of life where those who have labored with Paul were recorded. And then we get to Revelation and this whole idea is fully developed Revelation, the contents of this book, in in context of all of this, it becomes clear. Revelation 3.5 says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Those who endure and overcome are assured their name will appear in the book of life. In Revelation 13, It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written uh, from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb of Life who has been slain. Revelation 17.8 says, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come upon out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose names has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast and they, uh, uh, that he was and is not and will to come. And see, now it's clear still. This book was written before the foundations of the world. Meaning, before there was even an earth, the names of those who would receive life are recorded. Revelation twenty fifteen says, 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 27 says, And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you turn from sin and turn to the Lamb, Christ Jesus, uh, your name is written in the book. You enter the celestial city. You go on to heaven. You don't worship the beast. Uh, you, you don't fall prey to the schemes of the devil. That's spiritual thought number one. Your name, like the mighty men, has been recorded. Not in, in the list of the elect of David, but on the list of the elect of Christ, the Lamb that takes away sins. And here's spiritual thought number two. We who are chosen by Him are vessels for honorable use. Romans chapter 9. says, You will say to me then, why, why does He still find fault? For who resists His will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor us, you, for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for de- destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. We are vessels of, for honorable use, receiving mercy so that we bring glory to him. And how will we be used? Ephesians chapter 1 says this, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Remember when things are written down? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to his kind, uh, the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved goes on to say in this next chapter of Ephesians, in chapter 2, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's combine those thoughts. Though these recorded mighty men have no deeds for us to remember, David does. David knows what they did. David knows why they've been written down. And like them, our names are recorded in a greater list. And Christ has prepared for us good works for us to do for His cause. And though others may never know, Christ does. The Lord Jesus Christ knows. Our deeds may be the unrecorded mighty works of faithfulness to our wife and family. Or 
raising children to fear God or declaring truth to a family member or restraining wickedness by being known as a Christian in your workplace. Because you're there, people moderate their speech. People are restrained in the evil they might do. We might think of them as mundane and unremarkable. We may want to to do things that make other men quake. 800 men, 300 men, a lion, an Egyptian. We may want those kind of things. But hear me, don't seek your glory. Seek His. What glorifies Christ? And be consistent. I love the picture of Abishai and his consistencies. Consistent, always bringing glory to his king. Let's now look at the last guy I mentioned. Let's remember Uriah. This one I'll read. Verse 39. Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. The last position is a position of prominence. This is not a a chronological or sequential list of timing and value. Uriah's name being the last name is intentional. We're meant to see it. It's not to be obscured by the other names. It's skipped over by a pastor who doesn't want to read the list again. It's not meant to be buried. Why? We are not allowed to forget David's sin. You're not supposed to forget David's sin. Have you ever stopped and thought about just how open the text is about David's sin? It's remarkable. 2 Samuel goes out of its way to expose David as a sinner. The unfolding ordeal in earlier chapters is evidence. Uriah's inclusion at the end of this list is evidence. And then when we get to chapter 24, uh, we're going to be reminded again of David as a sinner. David's great sin is, of course, his adultery with Bathsheba that began in chapter 11. And then his conspiring with Joab to make sure Uriah died. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 11. It says, Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah carried his own death sentence. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. And so it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there, would, there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. In chapter 12, God reveals to Nathan what his king has done. And he famously says from verse 7, You are the man! Thus says the Lord, of, Lord God of Israel, 
It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives in your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The rest of the book then details the consequences of his sin in the rebellion of his own son. And he nearly loses the kingdom. We are meant to know that David is a great sinner. Church, David is not Jesus. He merely points to Jesus. David is a sinner saved by grace, just like you and I. Jesus is better than David. He bears our sins and not his own. Now, we may want to forget our sin and not have it remembered. That you? But th- that is not a biblical response. Hear me, that is not a biblical response to your sin. We may want to forget the testimony of past sin and put on piety and be seemingly perfect, but that is not a Christian response. We may want to hide that our sin has hurt and scandalized others, but our former shame brings him glory. The fact that David is a great sinner, it highlights how merciful God is. The darkness of his sin gives context to the brightness of God's grace. God spared David. And if you belong to Christ Jesus, God spared you. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. In the Corinthian church, they were known for what God saved them from. Paul himself was quick to share from what depth of sin that God had saved him. He writes in later in the same uh, book in 1 Corinthians, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than I, all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. He considered himself the chief of sinners and set for us an example of the humility that should mark all who call themselves Christians. 
He writes to Timothy, he says, It's a trustworthy statement, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Are you a foremost sinner? The world will accuse you of self-righteousness. You should see the comment section on the haps of Shelby County as they accuse us of thinking that we are better than others because of what we did last night. We know the reality. Ref Church is full of the foremost sinners. And Jesus bore our sins in his flesh. He was punished in our place. And the righteousness we now have is an alien righteousness coming from the person and work of Christ. And we are thankful for God's amazing grace. Here's my closing charge to you. Let's remember that these mighty men, let's remember these mighty men and aspire to have deeds worthy of remembrance, but let's be content to have our names recorded in the Lamb's book of life with deeds only known to our King. And let's recognize that we are undeserving sinners saved by God's grace. Pray with me. Lord, may we be good and faithful servants. Lord, may we approach this Christian life with excitement, knowing that we are your workmanship and that you have prepared for us mighty deeds. May we rejoice that our names are recorded in your book of life, that you've saved us, you've died for us.